the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral Podcast. Thrilled you're here today. My name, of course, is Eddie Cohn, host, creator of The Spiritual Spiral. It's been a couple weeks since I released a podcast, so my apologies for the delay. The last time there was a two-week delay, I believe I was on vacation either in maybe Mexico or Greece. So unfortunately, that's not the reason why there's a delay this time. Um, I've just been really busy with my other creative pursuits, finishing my record, mixing it, mastering it, putting these sort of lyric music videos together. And also, you probably know, but I did find a publisher for my book, so I'm just working with them and the editor to try and get this thing done. It's been like over two years, so trying to get it done. Yes, my cat just walked into the studio. So today, you've got a great conversation with Jeff Rona. He's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a composer, film composer, scorer, synth musician, producer. He sort of pretty much like does it all music-wise. And he just put out a record called Vapor, which is, I think, probably one of the main reasons why I wanted to reach out to him. I'm very intrigued by this process of sort of navigating, putting out a record in this insanely tech-obsessed ADD world that we live in right now. So we just put out a record. I listened to it on my trip to Austin. It's fantastic. It's got this sort of social network, electronic vibe. So definitely check it out on all social media platforms. Of course, Spotify, not not on all social media platforms, on all music platforms, uh, YouTube, um, Spotify, iTunes, so definitely check him out. This guy's the real freaking deal. He's been he's worked with Hans Zimmer. I didn't realize until speaking with him how much history he has in the music composition world. So it was really a thrill to speak to him. The guy really knows his stuff. I apologize. I, ironically, being two sort of sound nerds, I'm really into sound. Of course, he is. There's there's a little bit of a lawnmower in the background for just for a little bit and a dog barking. So my apologies, but I assure you, um, it's a great talk. So you can find Jeff on Instagram, Jeff Verona Music. You can find his new record, as I said, Vapor on Spotify, iTunes. So please check it out. Really great conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. I know I did. So um, you know where to find me, at Eddie Cohn on Instagram and Twitter. YouTube. I have a new song that just came out. I have a new single coming out in like a month or so. I've just, I've got a bunch of new music that's coming out as I prepare for the release of my new record this summer, eddiecone.bandcamp.com. I'm also doing a live stream gig at the Mint on April 9th, next Friday. Obviously you can't go to the show, but tune in to the Mint live stream, 8 p.m. Pacific time. I'm going to be playing some new songs from the new record, probably some old songs as well. It's an hour set, so I'll probably probably be telling, sharing some stories between each song because, um, I mean, I'm sure I have an hour's worth of music, but that's, that's a long set. So anyway, definitely check it out next Friday, the 9th, April 9th. And, oh, the website, IamEddieCone.com. All right, lots of Eddie Cohn. So anyway, enjoy the talk with Jeff Rona. I hope you dig it as much as I did. Thanks again, Jeff for taking the time to be on the show. All the music on the episode today also is from the record Vapor. So that's it. As always, thank you so much for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. What's up? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. I do not hear you yet. Okay, well, are you there? We're in. All right, good. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, options here for me to click on when it comes to... Yeah, I say you just click on all of them until something <laughs> something goes your way. That's sort of what it's come down to now. <laughs> yeah. You're in... Um, Echo Park? No, like uh, Miracle Mile area. I live three minutes from you. Seriously? Yeah, for the last five years, I've been um, wow. near uh, kind of 
five blocks below Factors Deli. Oh yeah, just Pico like, and Beverly. Yeah, well, God, amazing. We used to live next door to the Crestview Auto Place, uh, and then we moved about a mile from there. So wow, we're really close. I had no we idea. Are quite close. Wow. And yet a world away. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I feel I feel a little bit more bonded now that we're having this conversation. We're really we're like a mile away from each other. Mile, maybe two miles. I think. Yeah. Two. You know, I don't want to get too intimate on a first date. <laughs> We'll start with two miles and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably best. Did, have you? Did you wash your hands before this talk? Absolutely. All right, good. And my and my mouth. <laughs> just yeah. Used... What's what's the policy on um, on uh, f bombs? Other there, forms of uh... there there is no policy. We're we're just going to talk about religion and politics. I actually no music talk today. <laughs> Done. <laughs> oh gosh. Well. First off, the timing here is great because uh, we first of all, congratulations on finishing the album. That's, oh, thank you. Gosh, that's great. I've been listening to it today. I was on a, I went to Austin a few weeks ago. I was listening to it on the plane ride. I felt like you I, were on an airplane. I was actually. It was a. Wow. It was shockingly a great place to be. I didn't. I never took you for a risk taker like that. <laughs> Boy, oh my I don't know whether the like laugh... dancing on a razor blade, isn't I it? I don't know whether to laugh or be insulted. The, the crazy <laughs> thing is here is that I'm a, I'm a germaphobe, but this whole... Oh. this I've been, I was wearing masks, you know, before it was cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I, I was wearing masks... Back when it was a lifestyle choice? <laughs> it's interesting. I used to wear a mask like four years ago. People thought I was insane. Now I go outside without a mask and people think I'm insane. So it, it's, it's great. Well, there's 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 a common denominator here, isn't there? And it isn't the mask. <laughs> I can't win. <laughs> well, wow. So you flew to Austin. I did. Yeah, I did. Well, so Before you, or after the power failure? Well, that's the funny thing. Um, I feel like we're going to have to have five podcasts here because you and I, I get the sense we, we're already feeling comfortable. So I, I want we wanted to check out Austin just to check. Are, by the way, are we recording now? We are recording, yeah. Fabulous. This is, so this is actually... Testing the, one, two, three. Yeah, though this is probably going to be the best part of the podcast. Of course I'm recording. Ah. <laughs> so yeah, we were curious about, like everybody, including Elon Musk and Larry Ellison, I, we were curious about Austin and wanted to check yeah. it out. The problem was is that I broke my ankle about two, three months ago. Ouch. So I couldn't walk. And then I finally was able to walk. Ah. We, we kept canceling the trip. And then, of course, we planned it for that weekend when it was like the snowstorm of the century. So we had to postpone it again. <laughs> so we find the good news about the pandemic, you can change your flights now and, and they don't charge you. So that's that's a plus. Oh, OK. Well, yeah. It's a, so it's a, the virus has been a, a, a boon for um, <laughs> Indecisive travelers. <laughs> I'd cancel, but I just can't afford the yeah. $50, yeah. Uh, $100 booking fee. It's yeah. true. My ambivalence is thriving right now. So are you moving to Austin? Well, that's the... I have to say, um, L.A., uh, you know, sure, there's, it has its issues and, and housing costs is one of them. But boy, you, you can't really compare to, to Los Angeles. You know, just going there, I, I, I just, no mountains, no beach. And yeah. I have to say, culturally for me, I like being around, like we just went to Little Ethiopia last weekend for dinner. I, I just, I love that. And, and you're not going to get much of that in Austin. Uh, I suppose not. Uh, a dear friend of mine has uh, lived in Austin most of his adult life and um, is is the consummate Austin cheerleader he's a he's a synth nerd um uh sound designer okay teaches uh teaches ableton at the uh local community college has taught there for like a dozen years and he would never imagine living anywhere but austin you know it's um it's the city of the future yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be hated on today from the uh, Austinites in the world, but I, I don't get it, you know. And, and I, I can, I can see objectively why people think New York City, you know, pre-COVID, 
I can understand, despite the homelessness of San Francisco, the the natural beauty of San Francisco. I even understand Portland and Seattle, uh, but I don't I don't get it at Austin. So I I'm not now saying all that. I, I still want to go back because mm-hmm. it was very ugly there because the trees were not in bloom, so that didn't help. Um, all right. So I, I'm willing to give it another chance. What what are you happy? Are you staying put here? Or are you thinking of? I'm yeah. I'm. Uh... I'm a lifer. You are. Were you born here? I was. Wow. Okay. Where were you born? I was born um, in a in a a little <laughs> tiny hospital in Beverly Hills. Okay. Uh, called the Beverly Hills Doctors Hospital, which then became a veterinarian a veterinary clinic, and is now the offices for Fox Television. Wow. In fact. I took a meeting for a series that I ended up scoring at Fox a few years ago, probably standing within a few yards of where I was uh, <laughs> thus birthed. Wow. Oh, they also do murder, murder mystery uh, dinner theater on the ground floor. And are the pound- Not when I was born, but uh, more yeah. recently. Wow. Uh, corner of Santa Monica and Beverly Glen, if you can, across the street from the... Um, Century City Mall. Sure. Picture that. Yeah. For those locals listening in, (laughs) I was I was born there, three story brick building, and I've um, I've lived in L.A. my whole life. I've traveled a lot. I've traveled and been away for work. Um, You know, spent time in many other cities, but um, I've always had my home base here. Yeah. And, you know, not not to, uh, well, I'm not the cliche of, you know, somebody who moved to L.A. to get into entertainment. Right, that's true. Uh, I just got into entertainment as, you know, as a a young child. And, um, you know, I I got involved fairly early in my 20s. And um, uh, I would say up until fairly recently, and COVID may actually have been the, the straw that 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 breaks this um that there really was a compelling reason for a composer to live in los angeles Hmm. if they were interested in working in what what we lovingly refer to as the biz you're kind of um almost reading my mind as 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 sort of as it comes to questions just because i i was thinking how to sort of put this all together but you know, when I think back to my childhood, you, you know, my periphery, I just started playing the piano and then I went to the drums and I started listening to Nirvana and Soundgarden. So I started writing songs and, and you know, and then I thought about singing and, and, and being in a band. And now that I'm older, I, I think about, you know, <clears throat> music and TV shows and movies and I guess, yeah. like, way back, though, I kind of want, what was sort of your, where were you going musically? And, and was it, I want to be in a band, I want to be in a singer, or was it always, because to me, if it's like, is it one of those things where I, I just, I want to score film? Was that sort of right away what you were thinking? Never, never, okay. never, never, never. Uh, last thing on my mind. Um, you know, um, I guess I'm one of those people uh who, who would more rightfully say that my career chose me and not the other way around. In that growing up, I knew that I loved music, that it uh, excited me in, in various ways, but it never occurred to me that that would be a, a career path. Um, I didn't go to college for music, although I took a lot of music classes and it sort of swayed me. You know, I loved um, I loved technology. I yeah. loved programming synths and you know this crap uh, behind me. Uh, you know, on screen left, and um, you know, I just did whatever I could do for a buck. I used to accompany dance classes hmm. to make a living. Uh, my girlfriend was a dancer, and so there were all these classes. L.A. was a real dance community at the time and a lot of dance schools and dance companies and I was connected to all of that and um, that led me to doing a lot of work at, up at CalArts where they have a substantial dance department and I, I was a musician 
there several times a week. I had a chance encounter with a, a, a scientist from Jet Propulsion Laboratories, an actual rocket scientist, mm -hmm. uh, who had been, as a hobby, programming computers to improvise music. And uh, he mentored me, and I started to learn a little bit about how to program a computer and not just use a computer. He became not just a mentor, but a real supporter. And um, I, you know, started writing avant-garde music. You know, I just yeah. got into avant-garde music, sometimes with live players, but a lot of times with, um, with computers and synthesizers. And I'm one of the first people in L.A. to... To, to integrate computers with with synthesizers and do digital uh, purely digital synthesis, which was absolutely unheard of, you know, before the DX7 and um, and and that whole revolution. One thing led to another, and um, one day one of the uh, a, a drummer, okay, friend of mine from Cal Arts, who I used to co uh, play dance classes with, said, "Hey, I need to go to a guitar center and buy a." some little hand drums. So I went with them and I went into the synth department. There were these two guys setting up some brand new synthesizers from Roland. And it turns out they worked at Ro from Roland. They were sales guys setting up a new display. And I said, oh, this is really cool. I can make computers improvise music using your synthesizers. Hmm. And the guy just stares at me, goes, you need to meet my boss. Two days later, I ended up working at Roland for four years and that dragged me into it was, a, it was it was literally the year that MIDI was birthed and I was part of the team in fact I ran the show for 10 years to bring MIDI into the world and coordinate the efforts globally between Roland, Yamaha, Kai, Casio, Moog, uh, Oberheim, Lynn, uh, uh, Fairlight, Synclavier. I mean, just the, the entire world uh, became mitified wow. uh, in, a, in a coordinated effort that I coordinated. And eventually, and while I'm doing this, I'm continuing to write music for dancers and I'm continuing to work on art installations. And, and, and I also find myself starting to get a little bit into the pop music world as a synth programmer. Eventually, I quit working at Roland. I was there for four years, couldn't stand it. It was burning me out. So I quit and I became a freelance gun for hire, synth programmer, sampler guy, computer wizard, whatever somebody needed. And I started off in the record business uh, working with guys like, well, I worked for Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Fire sure. uh, for a couple of years. I worked with Albie Galutin, who produced, you know, the Bee Gees and the Eagles and, you know, uh, all that dad rock uh, stuff. And um, and then I worked for uh, a little bit for David Foster and and Malcolm Cecil, who had produced all the Stevie Wonder, uh, well, Songs in the Key of Life and uh, Inner Visions and was a synth nerd beyond imagining. And these were really pivotal, pivotal experiences for me because I started to understand how production worked. I started doing, working for just a slew of composers. Um, and um, But how did you get, like, again, how did you get the gigs just sort of... Um, word of mouth. Word of, wow, okay. 100% word of mouth. You know, it all started with, um, I had a, I'm a woodwind player. Hmm. Woodwinds, uh, yeah. screenwriter. <laughs> I'm a woodwind player, and my teacher had purchased a, uh, one of the early... Uh, electronic woodwind controllers and you know my job was to create all the sounds that he was using every week on Star Trek Next Generation and 
you know, whatever uh, TV shows. And he started recommending me to all these composers. And um, the only other thing I was doing at the time was um, uh, I did one live thing where I toured with this uh, avant-garde-ish musician named John Hassel, who was a trumpet player, part of Brian Eno's brain trust and my life in the bush of ghosts and an incredibly accomplished ambient fourth world musician. I joined his band and that was a pivotal, pivotal yeah. thing as well. Cause I co-wrote, co-produced, did all, did everything and then toured with him. We did some gigs with e Brian Eno and, and he was an incredible um, influence and inspiration for me. Um, but eventually I'm just the guy here in town doing all of these, you know, synth programming on all these scores. And then eventually that led to them saying, hey, Jeff, you know, this is a very electronic cue. Why don't you write it? I don't have time. And so I be that led to me spending about four or five years as, as a, uh, a very busy ghostwriter. Wow. And that was around the time that I met, um, I was introduced actually by another salesperson from Roland, uh, to this composer who had just moved to LA, was looking to kind of build a, a, a network here, Hans Zimmer. I was going to say, I've, I thought that's who you were going to say. I don't know why, but yeah. So Hans had just moved here and we hit it off and just mm. ended up becoming incredibly close. And then a year or two later, I sort of joined, I, I moved in, I moved my studio into, the, into his uh, studio uh, complex in Santa Monica and I was there for 10 years you know I also spent a lot of time working for Philip Glass going to New mm -hmm. York and and working with him on a couple of movie projects and an opera and a couple of live shows and um, spent a lot of time working with Mark Isham yeah who who knew of me through other connections and because he's a trumpet player and because I was in a band with you know a trumpet player who if you're a jazz trumpet player uh, you know very well, you know John Hassel very well. And um, so, you know, it's just this odd, odd series of random events. Um, and then eventually Hans started recommending me for projects that he was too busy to do. I, I worked on probably a dozen movies with him, uh, helping out, again, programming, co-writing, ghostwriting, whatever. Um, usually I'm credited. What do you, um, it's funny, what do you think about you looking back? And this, the reason why I'm asking this, because it almost feels like you're proving that there's clearly a creative aspect to creativity, quote unquote, but I do feel like you kind of have to be sort of a nerd. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative sort of way at all, in the sense of really understanding the intricacies of the technology, especially now. Well, you know, you, you, are, you are correct, sir. <laughs> yes. And I, I, I would put it like this that in, in media, and by media, film, television, video games, advertising, library music, whatever it is, you're not just paid to write the notes. You're being paid to be a full-on producer. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, your job is to deliver the recording. And you are the only person responsible. You can bring in an engineer, you can bring in musicians, you can bring in collaborators of any kind you want, but you're the, you're the final set of ears that says, this is it. So producers and directors know to, tr to trust those musicians who have that, that broad skill set, yeah. that their shit just sounds good. And with Hans Zimmer, um, having you know, he his, he got his start in in London working for two amazing producers, Trevor Horn and uh, George Martin. Hmm. So mostly doing jingles with George Martin, but he was part of the Buggles uh, with you know with Trevor Horn and worked on tons of Trevor Horn projects. So Hans was one of those pivotal people who came into uh, film scoring as a really, really excellent producer. Yeah. And he knew how to assemble a team. 
He knew how to direct that team. He knew what he was looking for, and he knew when he got it or when he didn't get it. And he raised the bar of production quality. And he's a nerd, so he knows what what all the knobs do. And it's so, interesting. You bring up it. You brought this up earlier, but you know, I'm thinking about True Romance, where he. It was sort of one of those first film scores that I actually paid attention to because it was. It wasn't like strings, or it was sort of this interesting electronic sort of. Yeah. Yes, and and I can see why people are, are were going that way, as you said. It's it's obviously financially, but there there is an interesting creative aspect to it also. Very much so. Yeah. You know, um, you know I, I think that music in pop culture, come, you know, travels in waves. And um, for a while, you know, a movie like Harry Potter comes out and then the business leans towards orca- big orchestral music. And that begats other artists like Alexander Desplat uh, and, and, you know, other very firmly acoustic composers. And then, you know, something, somebody does a, you know, then Trent Reznor does an amazing electronic score for the social network. Right. And suddenly all these producers are going, Hey, uh, you know, I, I want, I want that kind of a thing. So, you know, it's, it, it you know, call it shallow, call it, you know, uh, call it insecurity, you know, one of the films I worked on uh, substantially was I co-wrote um, with my friend Cliff Martinez a, a lot of the score to the movie Traffic. Hmm. And um, a few weeks after the movie came out, and it was a huge hit and it won Academy Awards and blah, 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 I got a call from, from my agent. You know, my agent actually called me yeah. and said... Um, Listen, we just got a phone call from a major producer who's got a big film, and he said, "Do you rep?" And they said, "Do you represent the composer who did Traffic?" And we said, "Well, a co-writer." And he said, "Come, send him in. I need him today." So I went. I went to this meeting with an unnamed, uh, but A-list uh, movie producer, um, and uh, he had hired a, an A-list composer who walked off the, the project because he got a better offer. <laughs> and uh, the first thing he said to me was, so you did Traffic, right? And I said, yeah, I, I wrote quite a lot of that. And he said, well, I haven't seen it, but people tell me it's really cool, so that's what I want. And um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, that's, that's, I think, the degree of thoughtfulness that goes into, I mean, how hard is it to follow a trend versus create one, right? Yeah. The, you know, I'm thinking about a lot, but I'll try and focus here. We, you know, one of my issues with, with the world now is that we have become so visually based. And I think to myself, though, a lot of what you do is, or maybe I'm wrong, but, and I was even thinking about your current record, you know, how often are you creating music where you already have the visual and you're trying to sort of like fit it in there? Because I do feel like now the world doesn't even really care about music that much unless there's sort of like a visual attached to it. Yeah. Um... I I can't say that I know how people tend to listen to music, but in putting out um, the album that I just put out, and I did it with a record label, it's my first time releasing through a label, and they were very clear. They said people really respond. There's there's, uh, statistics that show if a song on Spotify has that eight-second loop, called a canvas, a yep. little visual video loop. And it's eight seconds. It's, it's, it's utterly nonsense. <laughs> they said it drives engagement. Yep. And, um, and I was told absolutely do something on YouTube and absolutely and use YouTube and have links to your Spotify and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I can't really say that the, that the world has stopped listening to music alone. I mean, the world certainly has been listening to podcasts, and there's no visual component to that, but podcasts are beyond huge right now. Uh, I wouldn't know how to compare it to the audience for music. I would like to think that it's not as substantial, and 
you know, I, I think I could say that, you know, uh, uh, music listeners of a certain age probably don't really need um, a visual, you know, additive to simply enjoy a piece of music, you know, maybe while they're vacuuming or, <laughs> you know, you know, working out in the gym. Or, um, Do you, it's with, like with this record, um, you know, again, I guess typically you're probably getting hired to, you know, score a film. I don't, you know, there's a visual in place. Was it, what, were you just inspired in the sense that I want to do something for myself I mean, of course, if you license it, great. But what was sort of like the inspiration? Why did you want to get into yeah. making this album? That's a good question. So this is my um, this is my second album. Um, this is my my second solo project. The first one was only a few years, a couple of years ago, the very end of twenty seventeen, early eighteen. I put out my first album called Projector, and Projector was simply. I I kind of, you know, I don't know if there was any one thing that really triggered me to do it. I certainly have friends who are in the business of releasing albums of music without picture, you know, that, that are not soundtrack albums. But I kind of just had this feeling of, you know, I'm, I've been doing this a very long time and I don't want my entire musical legacy to just be soundtracks to movies or TV shows or video games, many of which I'm not particularly fond of, hmm. the visuals. And so actually uh, a little uh, a music festival in Germany said, hey, would you like to perform a live concert on the stage, um, on, on our stage, um, where Keith Jarrett had done the Cologne concerts? Hmm. album and it's it was that little it's just like a 150 seat uh, auditorium and i said yeah and that's when i started really writing in earnest and um and i really was driven with this idea of well most of my friends in the film scoring world would say without without a scene without a picture in front of me i would never know what to write there is no me wow yeah and Think of it. Think of it a little bit like character actors who are not paid to have a singular persona on screen, but are you know are very good at taking on voices and looks and and create convincing characters. In a way, being a composer for for you know film or TV or video game scores, you're a character actor. Sometimes you're going a little more you know guitar metal sometimes you're going a little more electronic sometimes you may be going orchestral sometimes it's lush sometimes it's jagged and edgy um i really was uh moved to simply make some music and having this um concert at this festival and having a couple of very uh good collaborators a cello player and a guitarist on stage with me two very good friends, both from London, Peter Gregson and uh, David Julian, who's a fine film composer as well, uh, having done the early Christopher Nolan movies. Um, creative people, creative uh, uh, partnerships. So we did the concert, then I, re then I recorded the album, had, had you know spent another better part of a year polishing the music, refining it, and I found it to be a very enjoyable process you know i got um i met some interesting people along the way i enjoyed it and then i haven't done one since because i've just been busy but you know that was you know barely three years ago then quarantine hit and suddenly no going out of the house no movies no art museums and i'm, I'm a museum rat that's where i spend all of my spare time uh no dinners with friends no beers no coffees you know no outings, no weekends, uh, trips out of town. And so at first I was absolutely elated. Not that people were suffering and that people were starting to get sick. Um, things hadn't gotten bad yet, but you know, we were in lockdown kind of prophylactically. 
So at the time, this new album, Vapor, came about from being happily cooped up <laughs> and, and getting into my some newer modular equipment, but approaching it not from the way a lot of the modular artists do, um, where they're basically building these very elaborate live concerts that they can then, you know, bring in sections. For me, this became kind of raw materials that all went into my computer, uh, tracks, lots and lots and lots of tracks and ideas all synchronized. And then I would sit and look at what I have and basically sculpt like clay, shape, form, cutaway process. Very little was added, um, but a lot was taken away or rethought. And uh, it just sort of took on a life of its own. And um, I played it for um, a friend of mine, uh, Justin Beretta from Glitch Mob. Mm -hmm. And he really liked it. He, he said, well, Jeff, it's pretty dark, but I kind of like it. Um, and he forwarded it to uh, the people at Alpha Pup Records, which, um, you know, they're the guys that, I mean, that's where Flying Lotus came from and mm -hmm. Thundercat and Tyler, the creator. And, you know, it's, it, it's probably the, the best L.A. electronic music underground. They're the guys who did Low End Theory every week out in Echo Park for 10 years. Anyway... They dug the record and said, well, let, you know, we'll, we'd like to put that out for you. And that is what got me to finish it up and polish it up and get it mixed and mastered. I not only have true admiration and utter respect for artists who put out albums of music that are not score. I, I, I just think they're, we're, we're in a phenomenal time for new music and new musicians. Uh, and not just this last, not just 2020, but the last few years, I think there's been a real uptick in fascinating new artists and fascinating music. And I get very inspired by it. Um, and then I have utter respect for songwriters. I am not a songwriter. Hmm. I've written a few end title pieces and um, just a, a smattering of, of little things. Nothing, you know, nothing of great value but again it's it's just the whole idea of personal expression you know occasionally every so often a composer like me gets to write a piece of music that feels utterly personal and important from from deep within that ends up in a scene in a film mm-hmm but it's too rare. There are too many cooks in the kitchen. There's too much compromise. Yeah. There's too much um, uh, well, the end result, the goal is different. Well, and it's interesting, and, and I'm not taking anything away from the creative expression of you working on a film. John Williams working on something for Star Wars, Daniel Lenoir working on the U2 record. But, you know, there is something about when it's not for somebody else, but yeah. it, it's it's for you. And I, I think it's it's probably a different... Ex I don't, again, I'm not going to say it's better. But no, I, 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 I honest... Eddie, I honestly think it's a different muscle altogether. Yeah. I mean, technically it isn't, you know thinking about producing chops and, you know, what makes a piece of music, what makes an arrangement feel good, what makes a piece of music sound good. As a, as a producer and as an arranger, the skills are the same, but the intent of score is to, is to tell a story that you didn't write. doesn't mean that it can't be, be heartfelt, but 
but often you you are hired to be it is like being an actor yeah it's somebody else's heart ultimately i mean i know that's uh, um, yeah it's funny i want to i i'm i'm having a hard time letting go of something that you that you touched on and and i i have to bring it up um because, no it's nothing no it's just something that i struggle with and no i mean i just finished a record mm-hmm. and you know, you talked about being really inspired by the music world right now. And I have to say, you know, I know Cardi B is getting a lot of press from being on the Grammys. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not impressed. And, and, I, and I'm a, I'm a, I scour the Internet for new music. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess I think we're – I don't remember the – there's going to be a lot of points here, and we'll see which one we stick on. But I don't remember the last time – you know, I listen to a Wildflowers or an OK Computer or, you know, Sea Change from Beck, like from beginning to end. And um, I, and I don't know. And I think and I feel like artists had a certain power over the world. And now technology has completely transformed the way the world is working. And it's it's just this interesting phenomenon where unless you're taking your clothes off, you know, I'm not suggesting we do that, but it's just, it's weird. It's like a combination of attention spans, technologies push to make artists just put out singles. There's just a strange phenomenon happening right now, and I'm having a hard time um, navigating it and, and figuring it out and what's going on. Yeah, I, I was talking with a, a good friend of mine who's a pop songwriter. And he's been at it a long time. He's been around a long time. He's written a few number one hits and a bunch of other songs. And he knows what he's doing. And he stays very contemporary. And he gets a call from his publisher saying, you know, there's this particular project, you know, very well-known artist. And, you know, would you pitch a few ideas? And he said, sure, of course. That's what he does for a living. Right. Um, and they and, and and they said, well, here's how they do how they do it. You, you would basically be sending just the hook, and it has to be less than ten seconds. You basically send them the hook, and if they like the hook, then they'd like to hear more of the song. But they won't listen to a song beginning to end. They just want to hear the ten seconds that defines the song. And he was like. Are you serious? <laughs> and, and it turns out that that's actually become, he claims, pretty prevalent. And, you know, um, I, I don't, I don't want to get into an ageist thing here. You know, you, you, you and I have been listening to music a little bit longer than some other people. And, you know, we're attached to a certain type of artist who represents a certain zeitgeist, I guess, of personal expression. You mentioned Radiohead, you mentioned Beck. Two very fiercely independent artists who did not chase trends and whose, you know, work is, is you know, above board. Um, you know, I think those artists are still with us. They are just radically harder to find. <laughs> Uh, some I believe Spotify alone adds sixty thousand tracks a day. Wow. And I, I think sixty thousand is a number that you probably will not listen to in your life. <laughs> yeah, and it's strange. I actually I felt a little sad the last um, few weeks with you know the mixer and the mastering engineer and I being mostly done because it's sort of like. Now I have to, you know, it's weird. I was watching this, these TuneCore videos because um, I distribute with TuneCore. And, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're saying, yeah, now as artists, you know, you're empowered because you get to put your videos together. You get to pitch the PR people and the music supervisors and you get to put the videos together and you do all these things. And so then I go back to my original point to you. Well, no wonder I don't think music, of course, there are exceptions and we could talk about that, but um, I, I don't. 
I, I, how can music possibly be as good if Tame Impala has to spend seven, eight hours a day in three, four weeks about you know shooting TikTok videos and stuff? It's just, I don't know how, when I hear the story of like Jimmy Page, just they're not worrying about TikTok videos. And, and, and again, I'm not trying to be a snob here about it. Of course, I use social media, but it's this strange traffic jam where artists now have to yeah. do, do everything. Um, yeah, unless unless you have money, right? And you can hire somebody who's better at it, um, which I think is perfectly fine. You know, um, yeah. You know, look, I for my entire career, which is most of my adult life, I wake up every morning, and the first thing I think is. Thank God I'm not involved in pop music. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have to think about albums and playlists and DJs and radio stations and album sales and streams. That's just, that's not my world. I mean, now I've put out a couple of solo albums and a remix album, and I have two more albums nearly that are mostly done that I'll be releasing over the next few months. Um, so I, I've certainly taken a deeper dive, but I don't expect to ever make a dime from it. <laughs> I don't need to because I'm very lucky that I can, you know, con people into uh, paying me to write music for their games and their TV shows and their movies. Um, and, and frankly, that makes the world a much better place for me. Yeah. I, I, I would not. And plus, you know, I'm not in my 20s. So, um, you know, I would be long, long irrelevant uh, had I tried, if I'd stuck to pop music. And, you know, when I look at my friends who have had a long life in pop music, not as artists, but as producers, composers, lyricists, they, they tend to say the same thing, which is, uh, boy, every year just gets harder and harder to work with 15-year-olds. Yeah. You know, meaning younger and younger artists, you know, because there's certainly been a, a push towards, you know, very, very young artists doing, um, doing their thing. Let me ask, how has... I guess it'll be a two-part question, but you know, I've talked about what social media has sort of done, and we've touched on it to the you know the singer-songwriter, the band. But how and I how is social media impacting, and maybe even more so, how is the pandemic going to be impacting uh, film scoring? And and because this it's weird. Like I I lament this idea of you know Steven Spielberg and Scorsese. I mean, their their dreams are to put a movie in a big screen, you know, where you're, yeah. you're, and I know we can sort of replicate it by, you know, you have your home theater, a big screen, but it's not this, it's a, it is, a, it's, yeah, it's an experience, you know? So I, I'm sure in its own way, social media and, and now, especially the pandemic is impacting film and what you're doing. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, of course, because Netflix. Yeah. Netflix, Netflix, Apple, HBO Max, CBS, All Access. Um, Peacock. I mean, it's, there are so many venues. They don't pay as well yeah. as they used to in most cases, unless you're, you know, A-list. Um, and yeah, of course, filmmakers want theaters back because they grew up in a in an art form that was based on the big on the big screen and their whole sense of composition and performance and editing and music and sound are all based on that theatrical experience you know there's a huge difference between sitting a foot away from a bonsai miniature tree <laughs> or being in a redwood forest you know, you could hold a bonsai tree, a miniature tree, up to your face so that it looks like it's 60 feet. You know, it's the same, takes up the same field of vision, but they have radically different emotional impacts on us because one is the illusion of bigger 
and um, one isn't, one is real. Um, so, you know, composers are being called upon to do a far broader range of things. You know, another thing that has changed, and, and the pandemic only brought it on more, but by far did not start it, is that television, which has for decades sort of been the the bastard underling of, of, of feature films, has become the dominant art form in culture right now. You know, Game of Thrones, Dark, um, you know, there's the, the, the quality of television has exploded. Some of it because the technology has gotten cheaper and is in the hands of, of so, so, such a bigger group of filmmakers who couldn't have afforded the, to do it. And it's just, it's just become incredible. And, you know, whereas TV composers were begging their agents to get them movies, now movie composers are begging their agents to get them on, on these high-end TV projects, you know, these, uh, you know, the Watchmen and, yeah. and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a long list. And, um, so, so that's been a pretty radical thing, you know? Um, and I, you know, I got my start in television and it's a, you know, it's different because you, you do 10 or 20 episodes of a, for a season of a show and each one is like is a piece of music that builds on the previous one. So whereas a movie, you have sort of one chance to say what it is you're going to say as a composer. In television, you get to say it again a little differently and again a little differently. And it's a little bit more of a laboratory. You can be a little more experimental. You can fail a little bit and go, well, you know, let me try it a little, let me try it a little faster the next time and see what happens. And um the level of creativity is, 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 is pretty grand. You know, uh, the other thing, and the pandemic very much is a part of this, is that, um, uh, well, we started the conversation about living in Los Angeles, and I said I lived here my whole life because this is where the work has been. That has really changed. Hmm. In the last five years, I have scored, every, t every film I've scored, and I've probably done a half a dozen or more, you know, probably like yeah, eight or ten movies in the last five, six years. Not one was produced or post-produced in L.A. Everywhere else. And it's become global. Um, and in the last few years, I've become far more involved in video game scoring. Hmm. And that's very global. As a result, I have a couple of friends who left L.A. permanently, pulled up stakes, uh, one moved to a little village in Spain. Another one is moving to Portugal. Another one moved back to England. Uh, another one moved to Australia. Because it's become, with high-speed internet and the ability to, to swap files, and of course the pandemic has sort of polished the, the whole how to do spotting, you know, where everybody comes into the room to, to watch the picture and stop and start and rewind, you know, play that scene again. And, oh, what if we, you know, the, that conversation of deciding how music fits into, into a project. Well, now there are virtual spotting session programs, Evercast and a few others, that really, that's, look, nothing online is the same as being in a room with somebody. And there, I would go so far as to say there's a level, a layer, not a level, a layer of creative collaboration uh, that is that happens spontaneously when you're in a room with somebody. Yes. And you're all drinking the same bad coffee and you're crowded four people onto a three-person couch, uh, an unimaginable <laughs> idea now. And um, I, I, I wonder if that's ever coming back. But a lot of talent has left, and to no to no to no detriment to anybody. If you want to go, if you want to work with somebody who lives in Montreal, just tell them what time the Zoom call is and go to town.
we back on the clock? We're back on. So, okay. well, for, you know, you ask me, there's two things I want to talk about, but I know our time, we've got about 10 minutes, but, you know, you're surprised that I have 166 episodes of the podcast, and I also want to talk about this word experience, but let's, so the first half, again, you know, I pump it out, um, I, I share it on Facebook and, and Instagram, but you know, there's there's only so much time in a fucking day where I can like quote unquote promote myself. And despite mm-hmm. the fact it's like, it, you know, how do what, what do you do to get noticed these days? You know, like it's just it's so you have to do it to, because you love it. But ultimately, I, I you know, I I want people to hear it. I want people to hear my record. But it's just it's so yeah. hard, it's so hard to get through the the the. Uh, the the onslaught of of creative content that's smashed towards us but i guess here we go i'll focus on the question which does this leads that comment leads me to this i think about and i agree with you about what you were saying about television being you know the the cream of the crop medium but i i think ironically that was about 3 to 4 years ago and i think netflix has actually, and I might lose a job one day because Netflix will listen to this and you know not hire me or something. But <laughs> it it has somehow turned into you know I used to be a big Ryan Murphy fan. I loved the first season mm-hmm. of American Horror Story, but I was listening to a podcast where he was on speaking to Kara Swisher, and it's it's not about you know twenty four episodes. It's now about like getting people's attention in six episodes it's 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 somehow become it's not about quality it's about people are i can tell people are thinking okay attention spans are fucked people are watching shows while they're emailing and their phones and they're playing video games we need to somehow create a show where uh we know that people really aren't paying attention so what's the best way to do that Ah, i know a cliffhanger so the first 40 minutes will sort of be like eh We'll throw in the cliffhanger. That'll get them to watch the next episode. I am so conscious to, when I watch a show, I don't have the fucking phone nearby. I got a record play in the background. You know, I make sure to spend an hour to two each week where I am just listening to the music and nothing else. I mean, I think it is so important now to really be like our own experience, experiential parent where you have to really be on it to be like, I am not going to watch this show while I'm texting. I, I don't know. It's something I think about a lot. A lot there. I yeah. Know. Well, you know, uh, when I watch a movie or a TV show, I'm really kind of transfixed. I'm mm. pretty glassy eyed. I, I don't blink a lot. Um, my wife is the opposite. She often has her phone in hand and she's, you know, texting with friends or She's pretty casual about television. She doesn't have that same thirst for mm. the medium that I I seem to. And so she has a very different, she does. She has a different relationship to entertainment. Um, it, it isn't like, I mean, she look, you know, up until uh, last year, we went to movies fairly often. And, you know, in a movie theater, she doesn't do that. But at home, she relaxes. She's not precious about it and that's just the way she enjoys uh uh consuming media Hmm. um you know you asked what does it take to get noticed and it well i it harkens back to how you and i met which was some time ago about seven eight years ago we were introduced by a mutual friend Mm -hmm. chris darius yeah Chris called me up. He said, I need you to meet Eddie Cohen. I think he is fucking brilliant. And he sent me some of your music and I listened to it and I thought, Eddie Cohen's fucking brilliant. I got to meet this guy. So, I mean, you know, that's not 40 million streams on Spotify. It's barely one. (laughs) Um, But the artists, the people I know who have achieved any level of satisfaction have done it mostly through building personal relationships Hmm, and not through social media. And the thing about social media that you have to remember is, and by the way, there's this amazing documentary, oddly on Netflix called fake famous in which the, the makers of the film take three random good looking people and with expert advice, try to make them into Instagram stars. 
<laughs> and the movie details this kind of in, in a fairly tongue-in-cheek way. But they did they they took it very seriously. And um it, it it's quite it's pretty illuminating because number one, most followers are bots. Hmm. So when you see somebody with a hundred thousand followers, they don't have even half that. And the weird thing is that the these successful social media influencers pay for those. Yeah. They, you know, for like, you know, seven cents a follower. I, I can't remember the number. But um, they pay fairly substantial money to a small group of companies, mostly out of uh, the Philippines. Um, and you get followers. And the followers, in some cases, engage because they're, they're bots. They're programmed to just generate responses and likes. And, and um, the last thing a platform like that like uh, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook want is to weed them out. Hmm. They don't. They, they could if they wanted to. They know they can tell a bot from a person. They can tell a, a genuine follower from a fake follower. And the only time they've ever cleaned them out is if it gets abusive, like spam. Right. They will shut down bots that are generating ads and, and spam. But they don't want to get rid of fake uh, uh, fake followers because it makes everything it, it's ratings it's it's like fake ratings for a TV show or movie <laughs> right you know well this movie brought in a hundred million dollars but it's only seven million dollars and the rest of it's you know monopoly money right uh, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at right now so the the carrot that we're dangled that we are dangled isn't isn't very nutritious um, so I kind of go with, you build a network, you have a newsletter, maybe a podcast, you stay in touch with those people who are valuable and, um, hmm. and that, that's, that's, then you're dealing with reality. And I, I think, you know. Knowing somebody, you know, knowing a music supervisor, knowing a publisher, having a relationship with an A&R person, having a relationship with a journalist, uh, a podcaster, uh, a, you know, wh whatever. Th those, those relationships are, are valuable. Um, and I don't, I think are irreplaceable, even yeah. in an era of social media. And yes, there are social media stars. You know, Billie Eilish got started on SoundCloud. You know, Justin Bieber got started on YouTube and they went on to becoming to went on to become, you know, two of the most popular artists of their generation. They're slightly different generations, but, yeah. you know, not what well, you know, what's interesting, I guess I'll, I'll I, you know, I think it's part of the reason why I love my podcast so much is because it, it you know, people put the phone down. I learn about people I'm connecting but I do feel like when, when art is at a high level, and I can, if I was your intern, if I was, I could just tell just talking to, to you for an hour, that if I was around you, I'd want to get better at what I'm doing because I could tell that you're really good at it. And well, then you make, yeah, you better make it a point to never come over. <laughs> exactly. At, <laughs> at, at 1.5 miles away. <laughs> no, but I think when I'm around like other interesting, talented artists, it, it, you know, it raises the game. Well, I feel the same way about you. Hmm. And, you know, in fact, I, I've I listened to some of your music uh, the other day um, after after you uh, emailed me. And I mean, geez, Eddie, you're 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 one of the good ones. Hmm. And if if that is undervalued, underappreciated, well, welcome to the club. You're in good company. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was really. Um, it was fantastic and wonderful talking to you. I, I could, I could talk Eddie, to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you a million. Yeah. You know, um, this is great. Now I have to go back and listen to all your podcasts. <laughs> I, if I have time. Yeah. You've got, you've got TikTok videos to shoot. So, um, 
All right. Yeah. Well, again, I, I congrats on the record. I, I, and I don't know if Thank you, you very I don't, much. And when I brought up um, Atticus Ross and Nine Inch Nails, I mean, I meant that as a huge compliment. I, I, I really loved the album. I specifically like tracks three, four, and five. I know they're like Vapor One, Two, Three, but I remember like around three, yeah. four, and five, I was really connecting. Yeah. Oh, I guess I just needed to, a little time to warm up. <laughs> no, I just, maybe, maybe I was feeling anxiety on the airplane or something, and you know, because that's a whole other deal, but I, I just sensed. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, like like I said, you know, putting out, putting out personal, you know, music of a personal nature just connects you to people in unexpected ways that music for media doesn't, or it's different. I mean, sure, you meet people when when your work is out in the universe, but that's the idea. If you have something, get it into the universe. Mm-hmm. Don't don't think about don't think about the money. Don't think about fame. Don't think about you know reaching how you know how do I you know get more people's attention. Start with the art and then get get advice. Yeah. Call Eddie Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> Call my intern. <laughs> Um, Jeff, I appreciate you taking the time. This was awesome. This will post probably like a week or so, but I, it means a lot. All right. Yeah, this was great. Same. All cool. right. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye.